Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the Webbox podcast i'm matt chorley coming up on today's episode a really fascinating chat with andrew mitchell uh, former cabinet minister, former chief whip, of course had to resign over Plebgate, so we'll talk about all of that. But he's also written a book which sort of lifts the lid on just being this extraordinary establishment figure who then thinks that he's now outside the establishment. Uh, probably interesting, the secrets of whipping, what's it really like in and out of government and his advice uh, to new MPs too. So that's coming up uh, as our big thing on the podcast. Before that though, it's our columnist panel, no Rachel Sylvester today. So we've got Libby Purvis and Susie Boniface. So let's look ahead to events in the House of Commons a little bit later on. MPs are going to vote on, uh, well, in fact, Labour's going to stage a vote, or a Commons vote, on banning MPs from taking paid consultancies or directorships, uh, Keir Starmer say. He, well, in fact, they were going to table that for a vote on Wednesday, but they're going to vote later today to reverse the vote that they had a couple of weeks ago, which was designed to reverse the decision on Owen Paterson. Um, it's one of those things where the old, I think it's always um, uh, ascribed to um, Alistair Campbell that if a story's on the front page for seven days, it's very bad for the government. I mean, it's it's going on for a good two weeks now, I think, uh, Libby. How bad is this, do you think? I think there's a sort of miasma which is going to stick. It's not exactly mud sticking. It's a kind of fog of, of general disgust. And unfortunately, it becomes a general disgust at politicians and MPs, a lot of whom work very hard. I am. I find it interesting that at last the Prime Minister has said he wishes they'd done better over the Patterson lark. Because Rishi Sunak did it first, which was uh, typically graceful and politically also typically sensible. Um, but Boris Johnson took too long. He didn't realise how it felt. And I've been wondering 
wondering about this, just on a sort of, you know, personal psychobabble level. Boris has always been a freelance, like me. And what a freelance does is take on any job that offers, always glad of the money, never quite sure it'll last, has never been a salary man, uh, having to sort of budget on a salary. And so I think the idea of MPs not having second jobs would feel rather odd and frightening to him. I think it's that freelance uh, mentality which he has carried on into life as a prime minister. That's really that's a really interesting insight into his sort of attitude to work and money and uh, and and life generally. What do you think Susie? I think I don't, I've never met a freelancer that earns 250 grand a year from one job. <laughs> <laughs> We're hanging out with the wrong people, Susie. That's why you're not Obviously, you're not going yeah, for dinner at the Garrick. I've been freelance most of my career as well, um, and I'm pretty certain uh, Boris Johnson was paid salaried staff member and was editor and spectator. And of course, he's got a very solid job, only getting standing for election once every five years uh, at present, which most journalists have to do it every day. So um, no, I don't think it's, I think there's something in what Libby says in terms of his attitude to money. I think it's got more to do with the fact the fact that he's taken so long to apologise is the fact that he's, I don't know, but I'm assuming he probably never apologised to his wives either. Uh, and they're probably unsurprised by what's happened. Um, but also that he's he's grown up in a world and been surrounded by people where regardless of his family's personal finances, which were a bit straightened once or twice, I think, he's been surrounded by people for whom money is just always there. He has never, I'm pretty certain, Boris Johnson's never had to queue in a chip shop. You know, he's never joined a queue, full stop. I, I don't think he knows how to budget at all, because he, he thinks 150 grand isn't enough to live on as his prime minister's salary. And I don't think he knows how to take his turn or consider other people. I think money's just a thing that's always there and he's never had to worry about it. And now he is I being made I... to worry about it. He doesn't know how to. <laughs> I think it's unlikely that he's never had to think about money because I think with a complicated family life like his, <laughs> I think there probably is a constant need to go for the go for the next yes, job. But he's By the way, he about does six figures, not you know the normal <laughs> amount of money that the rest of us earn. Yes, absolutely. But he he has queued at Greg's. Um, we do know that because he he's discussed that. So he may not have queued at a chip shop, but definitely at Greg's. But yeah, no, I I agree. But you see, the point about sums of money is that. You know, you say not the money the rest of us, and I absolutely I, I get what get what you're saying. I agree with you. But on the other hand, people who are used to having a lot of money suddenly kind of feel a desperate need to make sure they go on having a lot of money because otherwise their whole life will fall to pieces. And I think that's part of it. You know that that the same the same emotional thing happens with people with a lot of money as happens with people with with much less money. There's very few people go around saying actually I've got enough. I don't care. I was I was just reminded that I just looked it up actually about um, July last year. Boris Johnson was asked why he wouldn't say sorry. I think there's a particular reference to coronavirus, and he was repeatedly asked why just why would you always refuse to refuse to apologise? And he said, certainly I'm sorry if I don't apologise, uh, which is the most <laughs> Boris Johnson uh, response <laughs> response to anything. Uh... Um, where do you think we are, Susie? And because it, 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 this started with a clear breach of the rules by Owen Paterson. Uh, he mm. broke the rules as laid down in, and drawn up and uh, he was found to have broken them by the Independent Commissioner and by the Standards Committee uh, and then um, he ultimately, he's resigned and he's left the House of Commons. So that, to some extent, is the system working. And then has it been sort of expanded out into a whole load of people who haven't really broken the rules but are doing things which 
you know, don't necessarily pass the, the Daily Mail test. If you put them on the front page of a newspaper, does it look a bit uh, yeah. whiffy? There probably ought to be a rule against it in some way, and if there isn't, there's a problem. Yeah, and rules. then there's a whole yeah. load of other stuff that actually is allowed in the rules because we were trying to deal with another problem. So this business of them, you know, rent, claiming rent on, on mm. flats, that was a rule put in place to stop them making loads of money from claiming on mortgage. So what do you think is going to be... What do you think will change as a result of this? Or will... Is the air going out of this sufficiently that will will nothing will end up changing? Do you think? No, I don't think the air is going out of it, and I think you can have less dramatic revelations, but it just all piles into the same thing. We're halfway through the Parliament now, uh, and that you know, COVID is hopefully weakening, um, and I'm sure Boris Johnson is hoping it is. But I think that sort of the drip drip from the sleaze tap, which someone turned on has been fairly constant during COVID and before Owen Paterson, remember. And I think it's just, it's setting the tone for the premiership, to be honest. So that whenever we do get to the next election, there's going to be lots of talk about sleaze. I don't think that's going away at all. Um, Labour aren't weaponising it nearly as well enough as, the, as they could do. Yes, I was going to ask um, you about that. But it's, it's, yeah, they need to do something more. But it would help if they were all perfectly clean, of course, but they're not. Um, but I think it's really simple uh, how you how you clean this up. You just talk to anybody in the street. You just say, well, who makes the rules? Oh, it's the MPs. Who appoints the Standards Commissioner and the and IPSA, the uh, Parliamentary Standards Authority? Oh, it's the Speaker's Committee, which has the Speaker and MPs sat on it. Uh, who, who made the rules about their second homes being rented out because they can't claim mortgage interest anymore? Oh, that would be the MPs then. The issue is it's the MPs making the rules and then being found to break their own rules. That's kind of the maddest thing about it. You'd think they'd at least, you know, write a rule that they could stick to themselves. Um if you had true independence and, uh, you know, a judge-led standards authority with members of the public serving on it, then maybe you'd get a little bit nearer what would be passing the smell test, shall we say, in all circumstances. And I think as well what you need to do is to have a, an ultimate sanction for any uh, MP or peer who makes a really egregious um, breach of the standards rules is to is to say well you know this can get reported to the CPS and it's uh, it's potentially misconduct in public office or something like that we've got crimes that would already cover some of these uh, things and if you if you made some of these things punishable by you know a maximum six month jail sentence or a fine or whatever it might be then I think you'd, you'd find a lot more people keeping their noses clean and of course the other rule is as well. Never mind the benefit of having second jobs. There's many second jobs in Parliament which are of benefit. But why don't we just say you can have a second job if you want, but it's got to be a key worker. You know, the country needs HGV drivers. We need care workers. We need retail <laughs> staff. We need people to pick the turnips. If, if Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to do that one day a week, I don't think anybody would complain. <laughs> I think he would insist his HGV was horse-drawn, possibly. Um, uh, let's uh, let's move on to uh, the other sort of big political story of the day. Uh, cop cut the outcome of cop and uh whether or not uh, basically the west being outmaneuvered essentially by injuring china they they spent two weeks talking and then it all 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 happened in the last 10 minutes libby well there's the, the the difficulty here is is this this problem of the highly developed industrial revolution west i mean us and america and so on um ordering china and india 
and less and also a lot of less developed countries to cut down on their emissions you know when it was as it were we we use more and we started it you know and our emissions about halfway down the the the, um, the list and the americans are very high and uh, i think uh, uh, you know, Indi- India's are way lower than ours per head, and we just need we just need to look at the fairness of all this. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult to um, to get right. I mean, I thought the COP came out with some credit and some sort of profitability for the future, but uh, as Alex Sharma said, you know, not 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 as good as one would hope. Uh, so, I mean, that that's just where we are. I mean, we are where we are. We just all have to go on, and individuals have to try doing their thing as individuals, and companies have to try and do their thing as companies. Uh, you know, it's it's just uh, it's an ongoing struggle, really. One thing that um, uh, I thought about over the weekend, Susie, is that because there's been a lot of criticism early on about the decision to put it in the hands of Alex Sharma, um, not even a household name in his own house, I don't think. Uh, but actually, there's been lots of praise from him over the weekend. And it, it occurred to me that at one point, Boris Johnson was trying to persuade David Cameron to take it on, uh, oh, which, um, which we could have had the whole second job sleaze lobbying thing and cop all rolled <laughs> in together. As it turned out, he was probably working for an oil company or something. Yeah, well, thank goodness he wasn't there. Um, the, the thing about COP is what's really needed for it and what made Alok, I think, probably accidentally a good person to do it is that you need someone with diplomatic skills, which is something that Boris Johnson doesn't really have. He's got headline-generating skills. He's got blustering skills. Um, and you can say he's got some inspirational or charismatic skills, but and Alok doesn't have those. But what he does have is the ability to make sure that no one in the room thinks he's out to get them because they're not quite sure. You know, he's he's able to sit there and, and guide things that are going on. But um, I think p- the part of the trouble is that uh, there's been a lack of foresight. It was, you know, they were dialing down all the expectations for COP at the start of it and saying, we don't know how well this is going to go in order that they hoped, you know, that politically they'd be able to declare a victory at the end of it. And of course, India and China came out at the last minute and said, you know, they demanded this change to the final wording. Um, the COP agreement is still very good compared to what has been said before coal i don't think has been mentioned previously but one thing that has improved is this ratchet mechanism which means rather than coming back like once every five years to see how we're doing we're actually going to come back again next year and do it again and next year and do it again so while it is absolutely appalling that they can have a huge meeting like this and say well we're not going to stop global warming this year we'll try again next year they are at least going to try again next year but of course it's that it's the pacific island nations it's the weakness of those parts of the world which are going to suffer the effects first the political weakness of the pacific island nations places like kiritabati mm. and um, the marshall islands uh, and low-lying places on river deltas and so on which <clears throat> the big the big nations just don't think that they're of enough value or worth to really care about and the EU was fairly absent from leadership within the COP thing. And John Kerry said, well, I'm not happy with the wording, but I'll take it because otherwise we wouldn't have had an agreement at all. They should have expected India and China were going to um, you know, throw their, put their feet down at the last minute. They should have prepared for that. And I also think these negotiations that were happening behind closed doors um, between sort of the big nations like India, China, EU and America, they should have been done in public. They should have been done where everyone can see what they're doing and they, they probably wouldn't have done some of the things they did. We might have had more agreement yeah, there might or be a better agreement at the end of it. Slightly more. Yeah. Although, although I did think, um, uh, was it Alok Sharma saying that China and India will have to explain themselves to these smaller countries? I thought, I'm not sure China's big into explaining itself to anyone. Um, yeah. That might, might be uh, slightly wishful thinking. Uh, just finally, uh, Libby, let's, let's uh, quickly talk about your, your column in today, um, the, the madness of what's going on in universities. 
Yes, I wanted to talk about quite a few of the problems of the way universities behave and the way that I, I feel they've sort of rather dropped their duty of care to students in a lot of ways. But the um, the business of the, the the sex work, you know, safety for sex workers toolkit has been rolled out by Leicester University and bought in by other university unions and then endorsed by the university authorities themselves. It is just rolling over to this appalling idea that sex work, prostitution basically, on in whatever level it is, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, sort of on, online stuff or, or escorting or whatever, is basically that it's just like any other work. Oh, it's just, you know, sex work is just work. You know, it isn't. You know, there are enormous risks, health and mental and psychological harm. It's a terrible message to girls that this is a reasonable way to earn a bit of extra money. It's an even worse message to the boys, the male students at universities, where there is an outbreak We've a recently outbreak of, of rape cases and sexual assault cases within university communities. You are just saying, saying, oh, well, women's bodies are basically a recreational facility, you know, which should be made available for money. And I think that the university authorities in various places are endorsing this under the f feeble guide of, oh, well, we're making them safe. Oh, yeah, you're making them safe, you know, by saying things like, remember not to wear a scarf around your neck when you meet a punter in case he strangles you. You know, I, I think this is appalling. And I just, it's something about the attitude of university authorities and a lot of universities across the country, which I've pulled together various other aspects of in, in the piece. And it depresses me. That's Libby Purvis from The Times and Susie Boniface from The Mirror. Of course, you can read Libby in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's my chat with Andrew Mitchell. 
that Andrew Mitchell is the ultimate member of the establishment. But in his new memoirs, Beyond a Fringe, he lifts the lid not only on his public school education, life in the whip's office and parliamentary shenanigans. He also claims that his re resignation from government in the so-called Plebgate affair also marked his resignation from the establishment itself. And Andrew joins me in the studio now. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Matt. Um, so let's let's start at the beginning, as it were, because um, it's, it's, um, it's interesting as a memoir because you make quite clear it's not the end of your your political career. It's not a sort of, that's it, goodbye, thank you and good, and good night. So it's interesting, for the, to be honest, it's quite interesting for a sitting MP to be quite so honest in there. But let's go right back to the beginning. You're, you're very honest in your book about your schooling. Um, in particular, uh, you're including at Ashdown House, which is the Sussex Border School you went to, um, where people seem to be caned on a, on a fairly regular basis. You, you, you once escaped the entire school being caned because you were happy to be out of the room at, at one point. Um, the, the headmaster, Billy Williamson, you describe as a thinly-eyed tyrant, although worse has come out of him uh, since then about uh, Williamson being a paedophile. You said that this environment, the school you were in, didn't harm you so much, but uh, your wife and your doctor might disagree, you say. Well, my wife is not my doctor, but she is a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, um, uh, looking back, what impact do you think that that, because to lots of people this is an alien uh, school experience, what impact do you think that did have on you? Uh, I think it's very hard for me to judge, but and I'm careful about what I say because uh, another uh, person who went to Ashdown House and it was the school educated me and Boris Johnson, though him a bit later than me. Um, uh, the, the a lot of people have had life scarring experiences, and so so I'm fairly careful in what I say. But it is an extraordinary situation looking back that you know so many kids uh, were sent away at the age of seven or eight, you know bluntly, uh, their parents paying good money for them to be abused in the British education system. Um, I think it's changed an awful lot uh, now, and indeed Ashdown House has closed. Um, but I tried to explain in the book, the book is, the book is not um, meant to be a politician describing the way to utopia or, <laughs> or self-justifying. I am trying in part to amuse and entertain, but I'm also trying to explain how those five or six bits of the establishment of which I have been a part have changed over the last years. Do you think the fact that so many people in the establishment today, whether that is politics or business or media, whatever it might be, who had a similar did, experience going to boarding school um, uh, uh, and in lots of cases, you know, where abuse... Uh, took, is it created a slightly odd generation of people at the top of the establishment? Well, if it, if it is, it's not just one generation. Of course, it goes back for, for hundreds of years. And, and actually, when I'm talking about rugby, I explain that rugby's changed more in the last 40 years than in the previous 200. Yeah. And, you know, it was a school that Tom Brown would have recognised when I was there from his experience in the, in the 18th century. So, so, so it is a, a great deal about change. But the thing about the British prep school and public school system where parents for the highest of motives sent their kids away at the age of seven or eight you know I, I do think that has a marked effect on your development and you know I'm not a I'm not a, a, a psychiatrist but I think it certainly means that at a very young age you lose that sort of loving open disposition you have in your own home to put around you a sort of protective shell because you're with an awful lot of other people in the pack and you want to be one of them you don't want to be singled out. Uh, to add to your your sort of the slightly unusual upbringing, your dad was also a politician. He was a Conservative MP for for more than thirty years. What impact did that have on you as a child? Do you think? Well, I think I think it did give me quite a good idea of what politics was like. Um, 
at one remove. So I didn't have to suffer the pluses and minuses of his political career, but I could see what they were. And I think it's true of, you know, people who, for example, the children of, of, of clergy, the children of teachers, um, the, perhaps the children of lawyers, they, they do see um, at one remove what, what are the good things and the bad things about their parental careers. Um, and that was certainly in my case. I, I think I learned about what it was like to be a constituency member of parliament around the kitchen table from my dad. Would you, you've got two children, would you advise them, encourage them, discourage them from, from following in the, the family tradition and entering politics today? They, 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 they both uh, will not do so, I think. Although my elder daughter, who is a doctor, um, we're incredibly proud of both of them, obviously, my wife and I, but, but, but I, th- I think she is the more political of the two. But funnily enough, my younger daughter has got the ability to taste wine that I didn't develop <laughs> at all when I was younger, which is why I was never in the family wine business, as it then was. But she's actually got her grandfather's abilities in that way. So she, and she's not in that business. She's a, she's a communications um, manager uh, and doing incredibly well. Um, so I don't think she's going to go into the wine trade, but she could. But probably not politics. I don't think either of them would, would go would go into politics. <laughs> well, no. Let's look at, look at your career and look how much has changed. You know, since, since well, that's I what I in. wondered about because it, so much has changed. You were first elected MP in 1987. Uh, the end lost your seat in 1997 when the new Labour landslide and so many Conservative MPs lost their seats. But then you you were determined to come back and you came back in 2001. You, since then, you've been backbencher, frontbencher, and now backbencher again. And what's interesting, in the book, you sort of carve up the life of an MP into sort of those three stages, sort of on the up, at the top, and then what you do on the way down or, or after life on the front bench. What, what's, first of all, is your advice to a, to a new MP? And obviously, we've seen lots of the 29 intakes still seem to be slightly adjusting to what that really means. What's your, your advice to a new MP, particularly because you describe it as the, the, the tricky pathway between standing up for your own beliefs and sucking up to your party hierarchy? Yes, that's right. You've got to tread that thorny, narrow path between being a toady in the House <laughs> of Commons and uh, also just not forgetting, if you like, that you were elected for your party. Because, you know, in the royal town of Sutton Coalfield, I don't kid myself that I'm elected because they like the colour of my blue eyes, my wonderful constituents. It's because I'm a Tory. So, so you have to tread the path between being loyal to your party on the one hand and standing up for the things that you believe. Do you think that actually there's a, there's a little bit of... That maybe the twenty nine intake in particular are slightly confusing the uh, their local their personal local appeal and maybe the appeal of Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party. That it's not all down to them. Maybe in some of those maybe red wall seats and that sort of thing. Well, so, I mean, in in the red wall seats, the new members who've come into the house, they are a very impressive uh, bunch. Um, a lot of them are local champions. Um, but equally, you know, I, I campaigned once I was clear that all was well in the royal town of Sutton Coalfield. I went and campaigned in some of the red seats in the West Midlands. And very interestingly, I would say to people, are you going to vote Conservative? And they would say, no, I'm going to vote for Boris. And so his appeal, particularly in getting Brexit over the line, I think is immense. So those who came in in 2019 as they chart this difficult route between being a toady and, and loyalty um, uh, and uh, standing up for them for the things that they believe in. Um, the, the, it's a confused picture because Boris was so important in winning them their seats. No, I don't think any of them have made it yet, but eventually some of them will make it to being a minister. And you talk, it's very, um, it's very funny, the book, where you talk about uh, the importance of keeping your officials on board, uh, but also you, when you went in as, uh, to, uh, to be uh, Secretary of State for International Development, you were so convinced that the civil service was going to work against you. You had a stamp made. 
Well, I didn't think they would vote to work against me, but, but it was true that DFID was then a Labour department. It had been set up by the Labour Party, being built by Labour, and a lot of the officials had only ever served under a Labour Secretary of State. So I was sort of wary of that. Um, but they could equally see that this sort of crusty old Tory understood the importance of Britain's preeminence in international development. And I, I, I did have a stamp which was given to me a, a long time ago which said bollocks on it. And I took it in and put it prominently on my on my desk. But the truth is that I never had to use it and they'd probably been more likely to use it on some of my, <laughs> my suppositions. Um, but, but keeping your officials on, on side is really important because if because ultimately you rely on them. You, you could be quite exposed if you uh, turn up at the dispatch box and you've upset your officials. Yes, there's a, there's a story I put in the book about one um, minister who so antagonised his officials um, that he w- raced across to the House to make a speech and he had a speech given to him by his officials. He hadn't read it through properly. But he'd so antagonised them that as he turned over from page six to page seven, page seven just said... Minister, you're on your own. <laughs> so that's that's top advice for why you need to rely on your ministers. And then the sort of the third part of this is is the what happens when you and we'll we'll talk about your particular circumstances. But when you're you're then you've been to the top uh, and then you're perhaps a grandee. Uh, oh, well, a, gra- a grandee is what you journalists say about someone who is privately criticising the government. <laughs> so, so, senior so, some, a senior A senior grandee is, so, is someone who may only have been there five minutes, but who's criticising the government. But OK, but then, but then somebody like the House of Commons, maybe not as many as there could be, but the, what do you do when you find yourself out of office? Your advice to, to um, uh, people who are relieved of their ministerial duties, in particular, to not, uh, you would sort of urge them not to become bitter. Yes, I think that if you become bitter, you become rather bad company. And there is, in this third phase that I try to describe, an enormous amount you can do. I mean, I have found a, a, a lot of uh, commonality working across party. Uh, for example, Margaret Hodge and I have been working together on trying to bring much greater transparency into these tax havens and so forth. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from MasterCard. Empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Andrew, we were talking about uh, these, these, these different phases of being a politician, a sort of uh, a, a backbencher on the up, ministerial office, and then whatever we call it when you're, when you're no longer a ministerial office. Which is the more fun and which one can you have the most impact in? I, th- I think I think they're all fun and they're all parts of a political career, although often you move from phase two on the front bench to phase three post front bench, not at a time of your wish um, or of your making, but you can move back from three to two. Um, <laughs> what you can't do is move back to one. So I think that all, th- all three phases offer people who care about politics. And, and after all, whatever you say about politics and politicians, Westminster is the place where you affect change for your constituents and, and for your country. So, so I think all three have a, have a, a good place in any political career. Um, and after you've been a minister, you'll be a bit more independent, You'll be willing to speak your mind more. And actually, for me, to be honest, Matt, when I arrived in the House of Commons, I I didn't really have a a huge burden of of belief. I thought that we were much better than the Labour Party at running things. Um, uh, But I've come to believe in things as as time has gone by much more. And I've developed those beliefs both from the work I've done, I think, in international development, not just about international development either, and from the work in in Sutton Coalfield, where, for example, on assisted dying, which is a topic that's very much in vogue at the moment, um, you know, I completely changed my mind on that. When I first entered the House of Commons, I was 
very much against anything like that, uh, regarding it as a form of euthanasia. And what has changed my mind, the reason why I think it's so important that people should have some control over their dignity and, and pain levels at the end of their life in certain very carefully uh, conscribed uh, circumstances is because I've listened to what my constituents have told me and the awful stories I've heard in my constituency surgery. So, so I've sort of in my phase three, as it were, I've I've developed quite a lot of uh, beliefs which have come out of my political career. Is it is it difficult for a politician to say I've changed my mind? Is it easier just to sort of hunker down and try and stick to, particularly if somebody's been in politics as long as you have? say, no, I've not changed my mind about anything in 30 or 40 years, but as most normal people have. But actually, it's a sort of pressure on politicians to sort of pretend that you've never changed your mind about anything. I don't know, but I certainly, if there is, I certainly don't feel it. I okay. mean, I'm very happy to, and I have changed my mind on yeah. on on uh, lots of uh, different things. Um, and, you know, I think if you don't change your mind when the facts change uh, in front of you, yeah. then then you're, you're, you know, you're not really serving your constituents in the way that you should. Uh, one thing I want to ask you about is whipping. Uh, because you were both a junior whip in the major government at the height of the Tory rebellions over Europe and later chief whip, albeit briefly, under, under David Cameron. Explain to people uh, the job of whipping, because it's, it's, the, it's the secret corner of Westminster that people know the least about. And you paint a picture, particularly in the 90s, where it was all champagne in the mornings and push, having people up against the wall in the evenings. Um, it, it, what's it really like being a whip? Well, I can write about it now because since those times, you know, 25 years have passed and whipping is completely different. And part of the reason whipping is completely different is because of the advent of social media. But I'm able to describe what the whip's office was like then. Um, it, there are still one or two members of parliament there's still who are still there. Greg Knight, uh, my colleague, is still there. David Davis is still there from that, that era. And, you know, we did keep John Major's government afloat night after night by winning votes with tiny, tiny majorities in the middle of the night. And it was a quite extraordinary uh, period. And my chapter on, on whipping is, is called Whipping Like Stripping is Best Done in Private. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm able, for those reasons, to, to say a bit about what we got up to. And, and the job of a whip is to help the government get its business or to ensure the government does. So, so in the end, if there's a controversial measure going through that the Cabinet want to take then the Prime Minister will ask the Chief Whip, can we get it through? And there's three responses a Chief Whip can give. He'll say yes, if he, if he can, that's, that's fine. Uh, he'll say no, if he thinks it cannot be got through the House of Commons. Or if he's not quite sure, he'll say to the Prime Minister, uh, or she will say to the Prime Minister, give me 24 hours. And then you get the whips to go through their flock, the people they look after, uh, to find out where they stand. Now, and so that is the job of a whip. And the example I use in the book is this. Whips are not moral or immoral. They are amoral. So if you as Prime Minister tell me a whip, uh, the Cabinet have decided that we are going to bring forward the slaughter of the firstborn bill... Uh, and the whips office say they can get it through, it's my job to get it through. And so I will say to the colleagues for whom I'm responsible, who I look after as their whip, look, you know, this is what the government wants to do. There's far too many firstborn. Look at the way it's fettering the opportunities <laughs> for second and thirdborn. And look at your own constituency. See how many second and thirdborn you've got. It'll be a very popular measure. And, and that, in a way, is what the whips are there to do. They're not there to, to give you their opinion. They're there to find out what you think and to try and encourage you through whatever means, to support the government in achieving its aims. There are so many stories in the, in, in the book, which I, I, I'd like to ask you about. We'll be here all, all, all morning. But the sort of... But sex and money in particular, politicians seem to have trouble telling the truth about, which the whips could possibly sometimes exploit. Um, there was one occasion phoning, uh, trying to track down an MP 
uh, phoning them at home, thinking they were at home, and the wife saying, oh, no, he's in the House of Commons, but, of course, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. And um, the next day, I, I, I said to his wife, uh, I, I'm so sorry to disturb you and wake you up at two in the morning. Um, I'll go and find him. I must have missed him. And the next day he came rather sheepishly into the office and said, thank you very much indeed uh, for not blowing my cover last night. Um, and uh, I said, uh, I hope that you'll be supporting us now on these measures. And he, he, he supported us on all the Maastricht measures thereafter. <laughs> because he was with someone other than his wife. That was the issue. Well, you, you might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> The um, uh, let's talk then about your time is your, your your brief period as as chief whip. Um, and uh, we don't need to go over it all in, in huge detail. There was an altercation at the gates of Downing Street. It was alleged called police officers plebs. You sued the Sun about it, uh, and the judge was satisfied that you had said uh, the word pleb. We don't need to rerun it. That you don't actually rerun it again in the book. But you do. What really struck me is you give a pretty harrowing account of what it's like to be in the middle of a media and political storm. Something that you thought might last for a couple of days and ended up lasting for well over a month, over actually something which, in the grand scheme of things, what you did or didn't say to some to one person at a gate, compared to everything else that goes on in the world, pales into insignificance really. But it had a massive impact on you personally. Well, it, you're 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 right in what you say. I mean, the 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 problem was that there was a massive row going on between the police and the government over their pay and conditions. There was a massive row going on between the media and the Prime Minister over his decision to set up the Leveson inquiry. And into this boiling cauldron, I inadvertently stuck my chin. And then there was no news, which is why it went on for so so long, uh, such a terribly uh, long time. And, and the other thing was it all ended in a terrible mess because I lost the libel case. The judge did not find in my favour. Uh, but also, you know, I think about 10 police officers were disciplined, uh, three or four were sacked, one went to prison. So the whole thing ended in a in a sort of terrible, terrible uh, mess. Um, and it is, I couldn't write the book without mentioning it. It is, a, it is, I think, the shortest chapter in the book. But I try to describe, you know, what it's like if you're in public life, being caught up in one of these tremendous media scrums, which which are... You know, if you look at it from the outside, it doesn't. You don't appreciate just what a completely all-consuming events these 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 things are. And uh, so, I hope that it's quite helpful in, in describing to people um, that there is a family and an individual at the centre of all these things. Uh, and did you did you think about quitting politics altogether in the middle of all that? Yes, I did. Um, uh, and if I had thought that my family wanted me to do that. Uh, you know, absolutely, I would have done, but, but I, 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 I didn't, and, and also, you know, it just went on for so long. There was never a sort of definitive time, and once the court case was over, we had to deal with all the massive uh, expenses. But, but you know, I, I mean, I'm very, I'm at pains to say in the book that having a free media that is disrespectful, cynical, cantankerous all the things that you and your colleagues are, Matt. <laughs> I mean, you know, that is that is a far bigger protector, actually, of our liberties as citizens than judges, police, ministers and so on. That is that is the thing in the end which, which actually uh, protects us. And bear in mind that it was the pretty sensational uh, Channel 4 expose uh, uh, of police dishonesty and lying, which, which, you know, from my point of view, blew the yeah. whole thing open. 
It's interesting, actually, in the last uh, half an hour or so, uh, Boris Johnson's been saying on, in response to all the sleaze stuff, which we'll come into in just a moment, I just want to salute you and the media for keeping going on this. Which I'm not sure. I think that might have been tongue-in-cheek, but um, <laughs> I suspect it might. But let's turn our attention to Boris Johnson, because on the one hand, it's your fault that he first became an MP. You pushed him through... Um, uh, to try and get him to, to, to become an MP the first time. You then uh, didn't uh, back him initially uh, to be leader in 2016. You did then back him in 2019 because he told you that the Department for International Development was safe and that spending 0.7% on aid was safe. Uh, you then supported to, um, him. Uh, would you describe him as a man of his word? <laughs> I think I don't think that politicians throwing around epithets like liars is, is enormously dignified, but I, I, I think he obviously changed his mind. But I did support him very strongly indeed in 2016 um, and tried to stop him from pulling out. Um, and, um, you know, in, in, I, the reason I supported him was I thought the party had to be led by a Brexiteer. I thought that... Uh, uh, it would be a big mistake. And I would submit that actually the Conservative Party got the premierships the wrong way round. They should have had Boris to implement Brexit and then Theresa after To, uh, to clean after up the mess Brexit, afterwards. After Brexit. Um, but um, uh, uh, I'm going to... Actually, I'm going to give... I saw Boris the other day and I'm going to send him a copy of my book. Uh, Are you? Because yes. you're not... I mean, there were, there were bits in it when you were a bit rude about him. Well, I think I, think I do explain how, uh, as he put it, I sort of saved his political career. Because John Major was pretty determined that... that uh, and there'll be a lot of people today, I dare say, who'll support John Major in that. But pretty determined that, uh, that he shouldn't. He also... T- Boris Johnson also told you it was a national indignation and scandal that you weren't in his government. But why do you think he's not done something about that? I've, I read it. Perhaps you will ask him, Matt, when you're <laughs> interviewing him next. Um, just finally, because I need to ask you about what's happened in the last uh, few weeks or so. You, you, it's been reported, earn £182,000 a year on top of your £82,000 a year as, a, as an MP. Is that too much, do you think, for an MP to earn on the side? Well, throughout all the 34 years, third of a century I've been in the House of Commons, it's always been understood that members of Parliament can have properly registered outside interests. And mine are properly registered. But I think that the key thing is that your constituents should always come first. And uh, in all this row that's going on, it's, it's right that the Standards Committee should always look at these things. But I think that the, biggest, the bigger issue is not the money, it's the time. Mm. So long as these things are properly regulated... Members of Parliament have got to be able to show their constituents that they are on their case uh, all of the time that they should be. And, you know, in my case, I spend about half a day on a week on my outside interests. The other six and a half days are for my family and for my constituents. Uh, do you think that Boris Johnson made a mistake letting this rumble on for quite so long, being, you know, hoping that it would go away, sort of only apologising last night and saying it could have been handled better? You've been in politics for long enough to know it could have been handled better. I, I, something of an understatement. I think that I think that uh, Boris is absolutely right to apologise last night. You know, I'm as guilty as anyone else in the handling of this, uh, uh, albeit from the backbenches. But but you know, it has been very badly handled, and we've now got to put it right. And uh, I shall certainly be supporting uh, the chairman of the Standards Committee today in the House of Commons if he seeks to put back the motion that uh, we tried to amend. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We're bringing the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.